Good morning, everybody. I'm Gene Binder, officially titled founding pastor of Cornerstone Boulder. And actually, Aaron, our main worship pastor, was supposed to lead worship this morning, but he was uh, in Ohio, couldn't get out last night because of all the storms. And I don't know, I was thinking about being stuck in Ohio. That seems more like punishment, doesn't it, to me? So I don't know what's going on in Aaron's life, but... Dan was a champ to come and, and stand in this morning on really just no notice at all. Amazing worship, worship team. Awesome. So this is the third time that we're doing a series on Cornerstone's Elements. I hope that you appreciate that we don't just do the same message over and over again, but instead bring a new, fresh perspective uh, to each element with each of these messages. Today we're gonna to talk about the element of generosity. I like the word generosity because it has the word gene in it. Um, and this message will definitely expand our thinking that generosity is so much more than simply something that has to do with our finances. And my all-time favorite story about generosity is about a Christian man who was on a month-long business trip in Wheaton, Illinois, and being a faithful church attender, he dropped in on a small church that first Sunday in town where the pastor was preaching uh, uh, on the story of the widow's mite. You know that story? It's a story about how Jesus was at the temple one day, watching from a distance and noticing how many rich people were putting large sums of money in the offering boxes, but there was this one woman who only put in a few cents in the boxes, but it was everything she had. And so toward the end of the sermon, the pastor quotes Jesus from this passage, saying to his disciples, this is Mark 12, 43 through 44, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And after the pastor prayed at the conclusion of his message that day, he then says, we're going to pass around the offering bag, so please be as generous as you can. But just then, this visiting man stood up and said, excuse me, before you pass the offering bags, can I share a testimony that I know will bless this church? And the pastor, kind of sensing the opportunity to seize the moment, said, sure, go ahead and bless us with your story. So the man began, 45 years ago, I was really down on my luck. I was homeless. I only had 80 cents in my pocket to live on. And so looking for something that would help me get my life together, that Sunday I attended a small church near the homeless shelter where I was staying. The pastor taught on the same story that was preached today. And I was so moved by that story that when the offering bags came by me, I reached into my pocket, I threw the entire 80 cents into the bags. Almost immediately, my life began to change. I landed a job that week. A month later, I was able to rent a room and get off the streets. And then I began to save money. Eventually, I started my own business. That business has grown to employ over 300 people today. From that 80 cents, 
that I gave to God that day, I now have $250 million of assets in my financial portfolio. And with tears now streaming down this man's cheek, he said, I only have God to praise for my life. And then he sat down. Before the, pa the pastor could respond, a very frail woman, elderly woman, who was seated just in front of this man, stood up and turned around and said in the strongest voice she could muster up, I dare you to put all you have now in the bags again. <laughs> so I don't know why I love that story. I've titled this message, Full-Time Generosity. Because the type of generosity we're going to talk about today is not about something we just do occasionally, weekly or monthly through regular giving or volunteer schedule or something like that. The type of biblical generosity we're going to talk about today is a 24-7 lifestyle that should permeate every aspect of how we live each and every moment of our lives. And in this message, we're going to look at two important qualities of full-time generosity. Number one, full-time generosity originates in our heart, and then it moves outward. And number two, full-time generosity is driven by our primary task in life as architects or builders of God's kingdom. And the primary text I'm going to use today is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 34. I shared some of this teaching just a few weeks ago. Um, at that time, I didn't know I was going to be speaking on generosity. But you're, we're going to dig a little deeper than what I shared back then. So let's begin by looking at the first important aspect. Full-time generosity originates in our heart. It starts here. And then it moves outward, okay? The nine elements that we're going through uh, in this series that we're calling Established are what define Cornerstone Boulder and are the essential values that make this church unique. But as an essential value, gen generosity is not about what we do with our resources, our time and our treasures and our talents. It's about who we are deep in the core of our inner beings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the simple message in this section is that there's, just two ways to live our lives. We can either live our lives building up our own temporal kingdoms, or we can live our lives building up God's eternal kingdom. And there's a lot in this text that we could dive into regarding these two choices, but for the sake of this message on generosity, I only want to focus on how Jesus identifies the heart as the source that determines which kingdom we will invest ourselves in. The heart in this case is not our physical beating heart located in our chest. It's a spiritual heart located deep within our inner being. And Jesus is telling us in a way that if we want to do some good detective work to determine what's going on deep within the core of our inner being, we only need to ascertain which of these two kingdoms we're focused on building. It's so simple and so black and white that Jesus says in the very next section, 
This is Matthew verse, uh, 6, verses 22 and 24. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you've no doubt heard the phrase, the eyes are the window to the soul, and that's exactly what Jesus is alluding to in this section. But the window works both ways because the eyes are also a reflection of the soul. And in this case, the eyes are always acting like a flashlight or a headlight, searching for one of those two kingdoms to invest in. And the winning kingdom will always be determined by who we are on the inside. The eyes are only searching for what's already in our hearts. And the implication in this section is that if our eyes are healthy or good, meaning if they are being influenced inwardly by a heart for God's kingdom, then they will naturally search for ways to invest in God's kingdom. But if our eyes are unhealthy or bad, meaning if they are being influenced inwardly by a heart for our own kingdoms, then they will naturally search for ways to invest in them. And this good eye versus bad eye, or in Hebrew, and I, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, the words in Hebrew for good eye are ein tova, and the word for bad eye is ra tova. Sorry, ein ra, ein ra. So good eye, ein tova, ra, ein ra, bad eye. Was and still is a common idiom in Judaism, and it is simply meant that a person with a good eye is a generous, open-handed person, while a person with a bad eye is a stingy, close-handed person. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. Listen to this. Proverbs 22.9 says, The generous will be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. But the actual Hebrew words for generous are ein tovah, good eyes. That's actually what the Hebrew text says. And so the verse literally says, Those with good eyes will be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Proverbs um, 28.22 says, The stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. But the actual Hebrew words for stingy are ein ra'ah, bad eyes. And so in this case, this verse literally says, Those with bad eyes are eager to get rich. And so even from ancient times, it was understood that the difference between generosity and stinginess originated from who we are on the inside and moved outward through our searching eyes. And when it comes to being generous or stingy, our eyes are like search engines, seeking after what's already in our hearts to find. Okay, you with me so far? Okay. Anybody need to be caught up in anything? All right, good. Wouldn't it be fun if we could just do it that way? Why can't we? And so with this good eye, bad eye dichotomy in mind, meaning we either have a good eye or a bad eye, 
We're either generous or stingy. Jesus goes on to say that no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And you cannot serve God and money. Now, that Greek word translated as money at the end of this passage is mammon. And this word is better translated as materialism rather than money because it covers a mindset that is beyond just chasing after money, okay? And so the dichotomy here is that we're either serving God, meaning we are singular focused on building his kingdom, or we're serving materialism, meaning we're singular focused on building our kingdom. And don't miss that Jesus is underscoring the point that it's impossible to do both at the same time. Full-time generosity is an all-or-nothing mindset. There's no way to split it whatsoever. You can't toggle between the two. Why? Because when it comes to what we do with our lives, it will always be influenced by who we are on the inside. And depending on who we are on the inside, we'll either have a good, generous eye, singularly focused on building God's kingdom, or we'll have a bad, stingy eye, singularly focused on building up our own kingdom. Full-time generosity originates in our heart, and then it moves outward through the eyes. It's an inside job. It's a mindset. It's a way of life. And the generosity switch is either on or it's off. Okay, the second important aspect of full-time generosity is that it's driven by our primary task in life as architects or builders of God's kingdom. Jesus goes on in our, in our primary text here in Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 6 verse 25 and 33, to tell us what we sh- that we shouldn't be all stressed out about things that we need in life to survive, like food and clothing. Those of you familiar with this verse, you know, okay? Or anything else, really, that makes our eyes hyper search engines for ways to build our own kingdom. And he makes the argument in this section, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap But God sees that they have enough food to eat every day. In our house, we have several bird feeders out, and it's really fun. They're they're out by, we have like a big picture window in our kitchen, and we we get to see the birds come and feed every day. And there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes that do this. God sees that they're taken care of every day. And he says, look at the flowers of the field that neither labor or spin, Yet they're dressed every day like royalty. And so Jesus concludes, how much more valuable are we to God than the birds or the flowers? I love that. How much more valuable are you to God? Do you know how highly valuable you are in God's eyes? It really troubles me when people say, oh, you know, I'm not worthy of God's love. 
Everyone's worthy of God's love. You have intrinsic value just because you're made in his image and likeness. Jesus ends this section in verse 33 saying, in light of your value to God, seek, seek then, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Let go of your obsession to survive. Let go of all the time and energy that you invest into building your kingdom. Instead, redirect it to seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and watch how all these things will still be yours. The Greek word there for seek in this sentence can mean to seek after something like in a searching manner, but it can also mean to seek after something like in a scheming or plotting manner. And this word is frequently used both ways in the scripture, and the context typically determines whether it's searching or plotting. But I think both interpretations are in view here in Matthew 6.33 because Many people have yet to find God's kingdom and his righteousness, and they're still searching. They're seeking God's kingdom and righteousness by searching for God. But for those who have already found God, plotting out a course to further God's kingdom and his righteousness on earth makes better sense as a way to understand the, the, the context of this word. And I want to dig a little deeper into this latter interpretation of plotting because the primary task that we have as believers is to be builders or architects of God's kingdom. We are to wholly invest ourselves, our lives, in the eternal currency of heaven, not in the temporal currency of earth. And we do this by embracing the role God has given us to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth right now. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who are in heaven, who is in heaven. Got that art word in my head, the King James. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. How? Here on earth, like it's done in heaven. How's it done in heaven? Nobody goes to bed hungry. Everybody has a roof over their head. Everyone's perfectly safe. There's no abuse, no persecution. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples as a way to remind themselves of their primary task, to be kingdom builders, architects of heaven on earth. This, too, is our primary task in life, no matter which vocational path we take, no matter how much or how little earthly treasures we possess. The most meaningful way to live our lives is to be generous with our earthly collateral by investing in heavenly collateral, heavenly Bitcoin. I mean, isn't, aren't they both in the cloud somewhere? I don't know. I don't understand 
And by collateral, I don't, I don't just mean money. I'm talking here about a 24-7 lifestyle where we are all the architects of God's kingdom on earth. And I want to expand this a little more on this idea. I want to use a provocative text found in Matthew chapter 24. Those who are familiar with chapter 24 are already going, ooh. Which is the chapter where Jesus describes all the terrible events that will befall the earth just before his return. But I want to focus less on what those terrible events are and more on what we're supposed to be doing during those terrible events, okay? And to be perfectly candid about this, I have never, ever heard a message from anyone on this chapter that correctly exposits what we're supposed to be doing when the proverbial poop hits the fan, so to speak. And even though what we're supposed to be doing is clearly there in the chapter, I've never heard a message. I've heard, I mean, I've heard messages about buying guns and investing in gold and storing up months, if not years, of food and water, which I'm not judging is a good or a bad thing to do. It's just that you won't find these instructions anywhere in the biblical text. I'm talking about this end time passage telling us what believers are supposed to be doing and we are supposed to be doing it all along, okay? But even more when the wills start coming off. So what does Jesus say we're supposed to be doing during this terrible time on earth? Well, let's first remind ourselves of why Jesus is talking about these terrible events in the first place. He's on the Temple Mount one day with his disciples For some reason, they called Jesus' attention to all the incredible, magnificent buildings located there. My guess is that they're feeling like, wow, these are awesome. And if you've ever been there, you know, and you've seen just the stones alone, you think, how could they ever get these stones on top of each other to make that wall? But Jesus responds to them by by saying, That in the future, the temple and all these buildings will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing. Okay, that's pretty negative. (laughs) Maybe he's in a bad mood. Who knows? But his time with them is short, you know. He knows it's coming to an end. And he wants to make sure that this important message gets handed down to the generations of believers who are going to follow. And so this message is for us today as much as it was for them back then. His disciples asked Jesus, this is Matthew 24, verse 3, tell us when this is going to happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. By the way, for those of you listening either here in this room or on our stream right now that have been with me on one of my tours to Israel and having stood on the Temple Mount, And having walked up and down the Mount of Olives, you're now imagining in your mind these very sights. Just how close they are in proximity to each other, what the view looks like. And it makes these stories come to life, doesn't it? That's the benefit of visiting the Holy Land. It turns black and white stories into full living color. So I just, a little plug Next tour, God willing, I've already had it canceled two during this, this uh, pandemic. But the next tour coming up is April 23rd through 
through May 4th. You can go to the Cornerstone events page to check it out. It's one of the benefits of preaching. You can do little commercials that won't get in the announcements otherwise. Anyways, Jesus answers their questions by giving them a pretty grim picture. In this chapter, he talks about terrible events like wars and rumors of wars and devastating environmental occurrences and persecutions and a great many of people falling away from the Christian faith. And things will get so bad that he says that most warm, loving hearts will grow stone cold. And then finally, he mentions false messiahs who will appear to claim that they will save the day. Antichrist with an antidote. <laughs> but they're not Messiah Jesus. It's a pretty bleak picture of what will eventually befall the world. And then he says that he will come like a thief in the night, meaning that he'll catch most of the world off guard, including and probably especially believers. Maybe because we've become skeptics that he's really going to return. I mean, it's been 2,000 years and counting. Maybe it's because our hearts have grown stone cold because of all the trouble in the world. Maybe it's because we've fallen away from the faith, like you see so many people doing as they deconstruct their faith. They don't know how to deconstruct without losing it. And with everything taking place in the world today, it's not very difficult to imagine any of these scenarios um, playing out, particularly if things continue to get worse. But then Jesus finally goes, gets to the million-dollar question about what we're supposed to be doing during these terrible times. Here's what it says. Are you ready? Are you sure? And I want to just say, it's been here all along. It's not like I added it just all of a sudden. It's been in the text, but for some reason, Bible teachers seem to miss it. Don't miss it, all right? Here's what Jesus said. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. This is not the first time in the Bible that it gives us a metaphor like this, where God is described as a master who goes away for a long time and leaves someone in charge of his household. I mean, it really began in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when God finished creating the universe, how many days? Six, and what did he do on the seventh day? He took a sabbatical, right? He's still on sabbatical, by the way. It's still day seven for God. And in his absence, God says to Adam and Eve, okay, you guys take it from here. Let's see what you can do. Let's see if you can build a world that will glorify me. Let's see if you can build a world that represents my heart. You are now the architects, the builders of my kingdom on earth. And there are many times throughout the Bible, the biblical story, like here in Matthew 24, where God reminds us that we are his stewards of the world and that one day he will return 
And until that time, he expects us to be caring for his household, a.k.a. the world, the same way he would care for it if he was here himself. Feeding the other servants at their proper time is a metaphor for ensuring that everyone on this planet is well cared for on a daily basis. Just like we eat two or three meals a day on a daily basis. What does this all look like practically? Well, Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture of this. As he continues to answer the disciples' question in the next chapter. That question goes all the way through chapter 24 into chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, he gives us three ways to posture ourselves during this time. In the very first verse, in Matthew 25, 1, he talks about what's called the parable of the ten virgins. It's a future bride who asks ten of her friends and their virgins. By the way, why virgins? Well, back then, virgins was a synonym for single. <laughs> like, we wouldn't say that today, hi, I'm a virgin. No, you'd say, well, I'm available. I'm single, but back then it was kind of socially acceptable, you know, like even desired that, okay, I won't go there. And if you know, if, you, if you've read my book or you've heard us talk about the ancient Jewish weddings that um, the, bride, the, the bridegroom and his father would come and make kind of a deal with the bride's family he would do what's called a ketubah, make a covenant with each other. Uh, you know, I'll give you 25 chickens and two goats. Deal. Okay. And then they'd go back home and prepare the bridal chamber, which is the Hebrew word chuppah. And it could take up to a year before the groom comes back. And the bride's not going to stay dressed. She never knows when it's going to happen. He's just going to show up one day. And she's not going to stay dressed in her wedding gown. And so she asked these 10 friends to go out and, um, and keep watch. Well, they all fall asleep, right? But five of them have enough oil in their lamps and five don't. What's, what's, what's the story about? It's about staying alert and connected through the Holy Spirit. It's about keeping watch, keeping tabs. If you're someone who's keeping an end time scorecard, you might have already checked off a few boxes um, in some of the things that I said that are happening right now. You know, some generation has to experience this time in history. And we're encouraged to keep checking off these boxes just in case we happen to be that generation because God doesn't want us to be caught off guard, right? I love it the way Luke has a parallel to this Matthew chapter 6. In Luke 12, 35 and 36, it says it this way. It's not on the screen, so just listen. It says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. Be dressed and ready for service. That's what it means to be alert. Don't fall asleep. Don't run out of oil. Stay connected. 
Don't be distracted. The second one is Matthew uh, 25, 14 through 30, and it's the parable of the talents, right? Which is really, it's just the word talent. The talent was a coin back in biblical days. We use that word today as like gifts and um, abilities that we have, that God has given us gifts and abilities. We all have them. It doesn't matter who we are. God has a role for everybody to be kingdom builders. You could have a few cents or you could have millions of dollars. Everyone can bring something to the table here, and everybody should. And so this is a call for all of us. You know, here at Cornerstone, we, we, we see ourselves as administers. We're ministers, but we're administers helping all of you be ministers of God's kingdom in the world. You all have a responsibility and a role to play. And then finally... And don't miss this, okay? Because this is so important. The last one is, is verses 31 through 46, and it's the least of these, right? The responsibility we have especially to care for those that are on God's heart the most, those who are marginalized, those who live on the margins of society, those who are weak and broken and bruised and poor. Remember Jesus said, blessed are you, for when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. These are people after God's heart. These should be our number one people to care for in the world. Staying alert, using our talents, taking care of those on the margin, that's what it means to be a full-time generous person. It's a 24-7 lifestyle. It's a way of life. You may not have a lot of money to give, but can you be generous by giving compassion and empathy to those who struggle? That's generosity. Can you give words of hope to someone in despair? That's generosity. Can you give someone a ride to a doctor's appointment who's housebound? Can you help fill up our mini pantry? It's, it's kind of buried behind all that dirt there, but you know it's still being used on a daily basis? I just looked at it. It's, it's, it's almost empty. We just filled it up. There are desperate people who come and depend on what's in that little box. Or can you help build bridges instead of walls in today's such, such divided world that we live in? It's not just about giving money. It's about taking every opportunity that it affords itself to help build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Is that you? Whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It is good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I, I, i never forget when my daughter was about 17, so she's a teenager. This is a teenage thing, right? She put up a bumper sticker on her wall that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. Not quite the idea, but... Who's the servant in this metaphor? All of us. 
Who are the other servants in this metaphor? Everyone who enters into our circle of influence. Full-time generosity originates in our heart and it moves outward. Full-time generosity is driven by our primary task to be architects or builders of God's kingdom. So let me end with a story. It's found in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. It's about a man who spent his life building up his own kingdom. He's managed to acquire a bit of wealth. He's a devout Jew, but he senses something's missing in his life, and he's wondering if he has what it takes to be right with God. And so he comes to Jesus one day to see if he can get it figured out. And Jesus started out, uh, it says, as Jesus started on his way, this is verse 17 in chapter Mark 10, a man ran up to him and he fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer this question? In everything you know in your evangelical world, how would you answer this question? Let me just say, Jesus doesn't answer it that way. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You, You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He's quoting from the Torah, right? Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I mean, he is a very devout Jew. And I love this. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't look at him and say, what a loser. You can't work yourself to me. And then I love, he still doesn't share the gospel with him, right? He says, one thing you lack. Yeah, here, yeah, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come and follow me. Don't you love that Jesus didn't say to the man, go to Jesus.com, find the donate button, and start supporting my ministry. Let's become partners in helping build God's kingdom together. Well, you'll actually just be sitting on your couch at home, but you'll feel better knowing that your hard-earned money is being put to good use. No, Jesus says, you, give it to the poor. You, start building God's kingdom. Then come, follow me, and we'll do it together. Now listen, I just want to say this, okay? Because if you're part of a church, you should be supporting that church. Wherever you call your church home, you should be supporting that church. Our philosophy here at Cornerstone is that we anticipate that 100% of the people who attend Cornerstone give here. But we do not expect you to give 100% of your support to us. You 
give to the poor. You go help someone who's homeless. Don't wait for us to start a program. God knows we don't need to start more programs. What if everybody in this room took it upon themselves to be a kingdom builder on your own? Now, we'll do things together. Verse 22, it says, At this, the man's face fell. It went from he's anticipating something good to holy you-know-what. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Listen, the problem in this story is not that the man had great wealth. The problem in this story is that the wealth had the man. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But wealth is just one of those things that can have us, so to speak, that can get in the way of full-time generosity. But it could be other things. Today, it could be our politics. It could be bad theology. It could be the prejudices and the biases that we bring to the table. Jesus goes on to say in this text that it's really hard for people who are held captive by their wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to find eternal life. And so the disciples say, this is Mark 10, 27, who then could be saved? And Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Only God can change what's happening in the core of our inner beings, wherever we're at. 39 years ago, 10 seconds before I walked into a church, I was a hardcore atheist. And something happened when I stepped over that threshold. And in that moment, God changed my heart and I've been a kingdom builder ever since. Not a perfect one, that's for sure. But I experienced a dramatic life shift that day. Only God can give us a generous eye. So how are your eyes? No, how's your heart? We're going to take communion together. So you got those little cheesy, what do you even call these? And if you don't know how to operate it, which is really super hard, we should get some different ones. There's a little plastic foil on the very top that gets you to the, the bread. Helps to have nails. And then once you get that out, you can open up the rest of it and get to the juice. We call this communion. This is our common union together. Our faith in Jesus. Our task together individually and corporately to build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. 
as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together. And he took the cup, it was filled with wine. And he said, this is the new covenant I'm making with you. This is the pact we're making together. We're going to do this together. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. So Lord, we thank you that you think us valuable enough to be responsible enough to be the builders, the architects of your kingdom. What an incredible honor. May we be released from all the things that hinder us from doing that. Would you search our hearts, oh God? And get inside and change anything that needs to be changed that we're holding on to that keeps us from that task. May we build our lives on solid rock, not on shifting sand. Pray this in Jesus' name.